0: way through the book of Philippians, and we're working our way through this sermon series. We've been calling this sermon series, The Best is Yet to Come, thinking about that eschatological and theological truth that we as Christians know, that that if you know Jesus rose from the grave, that He went to the cross, and He defeated death and sin, and He overcame sin and death— that you know that he rose again, uh, he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father, he'll come back one day to judge the living and the dead, then you know that for us the best is yet to come. That whatever we face in this world, whatever momentary suffering or distress or hardship we go through, we know that in the end that we are seated in heaven with Christ at the right hand of the Father, that we have this promise of full redemption that's coming, and we have the first fruits of that redemption, His Holy Spirit, already in us. And, uh, and so that's what we're thinking about. You know, in, in uh, Philippians 1-6, Paul says, "...for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus." And so that's kind of a theme verse as we go through the book of Philippians that Paul is confident and we can be confident that God who started something good in us will finish it. God's not going to leave us half done. Whatever you're facing now, it's not going to throw God off from his ultimate plan for your life, that nothing we do, that nothing that happens to us in this world can keep us from this plan that God has for our lives, and that's good news. The question I want you to think about this morning is, do you ever feel like the whole world is resting on your shoulders. Anybody here feel like the whole world is resting on their shoulders? We've got a few. Or maybe not the whole entire world, like we're the leader of the free world type thing, but at least our whole world is resting on our shoulders. You feel like that? Like like maybe it's your financial area of your life, and you're like, I can't get this weight off my shoulder. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe a marriage that you want to fix. You want to. You want to work through things. You want, but it's just a weight that's always there. Or maybe it's a child that's going through a hard time, and, and it's just this this constant weight on you. Maybe it's your job. Your job feels like a weight on your shoulders. I have to say that in the past month, I have felt uh, just in full disclosure a a, a, a a different type of weight on my shoulder since last the end of June when Pastor John, our senior pastor for the past thirty years, retired and I stepped into that role of lead pastor here at Christchurch, there's a there's an additional weight to that. There, there's an additional responsibility. I haven't slept quite as well. I still sleep pretty well, but I haven't slept quite as well. And I know some of you all you feel that kind of heaviness, that weight on your shoulders, like like you're carrying all of this responsibility. Well, the Bible in uh, Philippians chapter 2 gives us an answer to that question of how to release that weight on our shoulders, that that weight of... How do we carry everything that's expected of us in this world? And what Paul's going to say is that there's work for us to do. There's no doubt about that. There's something for you to do in working out this salvation in your life. There's something for you to do in completing what God started in you. There's something for you to do in living out this gospel life. That's for sure. We're going to talk about what that is that is our work. But ultimately, it's God who's working in us, according to his will, and his, to work towards our maturity. And we're going to talk about the fact that God's working in you, and the church is here working for you as we work out our salvation together. You know, Paul's already said that he's confident God's going to finish what way he's starting in you. No circumstance can keep you from what God has for you. And that weight that we carry on our shoulders, we don't have to carry alone. You know, Romans eight thirty-eight through 39 says, for I'm convinced of For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just to quickly review, Philippians 1 was about the confidence that we have as children of God, that we can be confident that God's going to finish what he started, that we can be confident in God's promise. Philippians 2 is all about how we can make that promise our promise, how we can live into that. The first half of Philippians 2, which we looked at last week, was the attitude of the believer, which brings God's promise into our lives, and that's the attitude of humility, the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ. And this week we're looking at not the attitude that brings God's completed work in our life, but the action. What is it that we do that brings God's work in our lives, And the answer is, we have work to do, but it's not alone. All right, we're going to dig into it. Number one on your sermon notes, if you're following along, there's work for you to do. As we think about God's promise for our lives, as we think about our best future, as we think about the maturity that we need as Christian people, as we think about living out the gospel life, that's the way we say it here, or a theological term is sanctification, or becoming all that God has for us. As we think about going from where we are right now to where God wants us to be in life, you got to know there's work for you to do. There's something for you to do. The Christian life is not a passive life. Even though we talk a lot about resting in the Lord, the resting that we're doing is not lethargy, just sitting around doing nothing. That the, There is a work to living out this Christian life. Look at Philippians 2, 12-16. And so so then, my beloved, just as I have always obeyed, sorry, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast to the Word of God so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul says, listen, As we think about what God's doing in our lives, as we think about this completing work that God's going to do, this perfecting, Paul uses that word, this maturing that God wants to do in our lives, that where we're headed in our lives, the best that's coming, Paul says, there's work for you and me to do. He says in in verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's work for us to do. Some churches and some theological perspectives give the idea that the Christian life is a passive life. That because we are saved by grace through faith, that our response to this grace is to do nothing. That there's nothing we can do. That God saves us by His grace, which is true, and God sanctifies us by His grace, which is true. So therefore, it's all God and it's none us. And it's true in the sense that it's not on us to... Perfect ourselves. It's not on us to make ourselves righteous. We can't live up to God's standard. But God comes down to where we are. But it doesn't mean that the Christian life is a passive life. You see, sometimes we get that impression that that our job is to do nothing. That is absolutely not the truth. We are not like a piece of wood that the master carpenter just fashions into the piece of furniture. That He wants. No, God has chosen by His Holy Spirit to restore to us a will. God has chosen by His Holy Spirit to give us gifts for ministry. God has chosen by His Holy Spirit dwelling within us to make us part of His body, living out His work in the world, and there's work for us to do. I want to just walk you through this verse. Paul says in verse 12, he begins with these words, my beloved. He's writing a church, right? He's not writing his girlfriend or his wife. He's not writing his parents or his children in a physical sense, but he calls them my beloved. He uses this term of endearment, right? This is a church, but this is a church that he helped plant. Actually, he planted it. 12 years earlier, he saw the people in Philippi come to faith in Christ. He watched them embrace Jesus. He saw them become children of God, and they're like his own children. He loves these people. Understand that that's the context of everything he's going to say to them about working out their salvation. He he loves them the way a parent loves their children. He has them in his heart. He's willing to lay down his life for them. He says, if I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering for you, I consider it joy. He's willing to give his life for them because they're his beloved. And then in verse 12, he says, and I've just said this, I'm going to repeat it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got work to do. We're working out our salvation. God's given us this salvation as a free gift, but we're working in it. How do we work out our salvation? By using the means of grace. It's not work like I'm going to make myself holy, I'm going to live up to this law. It's work like how do I avail myself to God? By being in worship, by being part of a small group, by having people speak into my life and speaking into their lives, by daily being in the Word, by daily praying, by doing works of piety and works of mercy and justice by witnessing to my faith and being a steward of the resources God's given me. When I do these things, God's Spirit avails in my life and does that work of maturing, of completing. But it's interesting because Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Anybody bothered by those last three words? fear and trembling. That those words feel like they belong in Leviticus not in Philippians, right? That I, if I were writing the Bible and nobody asked me to write the Bible, just to understand that. But if I were writing the Bible, I think I would have written, hopefully inspired by the Holy Spirit, work out your salvation with like joy and enthusiasm. That, that sounds better to me. Anybody think that sounds better? Want to, want to make a new Todd version and just <laughs> correct that? Work out your salvation with peace and contentment. You know, that sounds better. Well, like I said, I'm just joking, but it's not on me to write the Bible, and it's not even on us to interpret the Bible as if we can control what it says. Our job is to interpret the Bible, to try to understand what the Scripture is saying to us, as as God has revealed God's truth to us, what what is God saying to us through this ancient Scripture? I think what he's saying when Paul writes with fear and trembling is Paul's looking at the other side of salvation. If not salvation, if not working out salvation, what's on the other side? It's been 12 years since these Philippians had heard the gospel, and he's reminding them of what it was before they heard the gospel. The fear and trembling of not knowing God, the fear and trembling of the sin and the, and the death that awaits us, the, the fear and trembling of life without grace. And so Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not, not that salvation is an act of fear and trembling, but it's the, it's the other side of, if not for grace— If not for God, if not for Jesus on the cross, if not for the resurrection, then what? Well, what is my life apart from this salvation? And that should cause in us, if we remember what that was like before I knew grace, that should cause in us this trepidation, this fear, this trembling. And then Paul goes on in verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What he's saying is, is that grumbling and disputing are essential parts of our old life. They're, they're parts of our life in the flesh. They're parts in our life apart from God's grace. Grumbling and disputing is not part of this new life. As we work at our salvation, as we move from this imputed righteousness to this imparted righteousness, this salvation, this sanctification, as we make this move towards our maturing in faith, grumbling and disputing are not part of that. Those aren't characteristics of the new life, right? Some of us have been grumbling and disputing for so long they just feel like a natural part of our lives. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe you, you live with somebody like this, or maybe you know somebody like this, maybe you work with somebody like this, but grumbling and disputing almost feels like a part of our personality, right? Like I'm an introvert, and I'm a feeler, and I'm a grumbler, you know, type thing. And it just feels like who, who we are. And Paul's saying to these folks, no, no, grumbling and disputing is not part of living out the gospel life. When we live out the gospel life, we live it out differently. We live it out changed. Grumbling and disputing, in a sense, are the opposite of humility, right? Jesus was not a grumbler and disputer, right? Because Jesus was humble. He went to the Sanhedrin where they spit on him and beat him and pressed thorns into his head and accused him of things he never did, And it says he went like a sheep to the slaughter, without a word, not grumbling and disputing. He went to the cross, and they nailed his wrists and his ankles to the cross, and he didn't grumble or dispute, right? He was innocent, but he didn't protest. He didn't didn't dispute, because Jesus is the epitome of humility, right? Right? And so when we take on the mind of Christ, when, when we take on the, the, the attitude of Christ into our lives, this has to go. This is rooted in a, a pride, an arrogance, a sense that it's about us. And so Paul says, as we work out this salvation, we do so with fear and trembling without grumbling and disputing. And then in verse 15, Paul says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Paul says, blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent. Paul says we're supposed to live differently. And he uses the metaphor here of children. He doesn't, when he says children, he doesn't mean immature people who need to mature. Sometimes we use the word children to mean that, but he's calling them to maturity. But when he says children here, the the way that he wants to live as children is innocent, different than the adult world around us. And he calls this adult world around us a crooked and perverse generation. 61 AD, this is when Paul's writing, he's in Rome. And he's writing this enclave of Rome, which is in Macedonia called Philippi. And and no doubt, if you read the historians, the historians will describe that part of the pagan Roman world as crooked and diver and, and perverse. It's, it's crooked if you if you know anything about ancient Rome. Nero was the emperor in 61 A.D. Nero was Universally hated. He was hated by his own uh, Senate because he was notoriously crooked. One of the things that historians tell us about Nero is that in 64 AD, just three years after this book was written, Nero burned down about half of Rome on purpose. He, uh, historians believe, wanted to expand his palace and get credit for rebuilding Rome in a beautiful modern image of himself. And so he burned down about half of the city of Rome and blamed it on the Christians and then started this great persecution of the Christians and burned the Christians in the street because he was a notoriously crooked person, right? That that was a generation. And this generation, Paul describes as a perverse generation, a a, a world where there are... uh, Temples filled with enslaved cultic prostitutes worshiping gods and serving their worshipers. And so in that kind of a world, this is the kind of world that the Philippians live in, Paul's saying live differently. Live blamelessly. Live innocently. Live like children. Don't don't live like that. And what Paul's describing is how we live out this gospel life. We live out this gospel life without blaming, without disputing. We live out this gospel life in fear and trembling, realizing what life would be if we didn't have grace. And we live out this gospel life blamelessly and innocently. Paul says, work out your salvation. Now, the good news is, is that we're not working out our salvation on our own. Like I said, working out our salvation is using the means of grace. But Paul talks about working out our salvation, this is Roman number two, as God works within you. That is God working in us that enables us to work out our salvation. It's God working in us that allows us to live differently. It's God working in us that allows us to be blameless and innocent. It's not something we do in ourselves, but God works in you. Look at verse 13 on your sermon notes. It says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the end of verse 12. And then it says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's point, again, in this whole passage of chapter 2, is that we are to live differently as we complete what God has begun in us. As God completes what God has begun in us, we will live differently. We have a different attitude. We have a different work. But here Paul reminds them that it's not their work that's ultimately responsible for the salvation and sanctification God has for them, but it's God working within them. That we can't do this on our own. None of us can earn our salvation. None of us can work out our salvation on our own. But it's God who works in us. That God is the the primary actor in working out our salvation. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of our faith. That God is working in you. How does God work in us, you may ask? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised us when Jesus went to be with the Father. He promised He'd send His Holy Spirit. It's God in person, indwelling us, filling us with the presence of God. Now now God, who the disciples saw external to themselves and they followed Him, now this God is living in us and empowering us from the inside to live differently. We work out our salvation as we avail ourselves to God's presence, as God works within us to transform our lives, to do this good work in our lives. It's God working within you. Charles Wesley was the brother of John Wesley. Charles Wesley was the hymn writer. He wrote over 6,000 hymns, and many of the hymns were on this theme of sanctification. One of my favorites is this hymn called Love Divine, All Love Excelling. I'm just going to read a couple verses of this. It says, Breathe on me. Breathe, O breathe, thy living spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find that second rest. Take away our bent for sinning, Alpha and Omega B. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. God's Completing what he's starting, he's leading us into the second rest. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The last verse of that classic hymn says, "Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise." God works within us as we work out our salvation. God doesn't work within us in opposition to us working on our salvation. But as we avail ourselves to God, it's God who works in us. How, how do we move into God's best for us? How does God complete the good work he started in us? When we use the means of grace, God works in us to transform us. And so we're working. You, you, you want to get to where God created you to go, we're working. God's working in us as we're working, but there's a third party that's at work in your salvation. I think this is so important for us to understand. We're working, God's working, but there's a third party in us that's, that's foundational to working out this salvation, and that is the church. The church is working with you. As, as I work out my salvation and God's working within me, it's the, wor- it's the church that's the context that's working with me, where two or three are gathered, Christ is in our midst, that God is working with me to work out this salvation. I'm going to read for you chapter 2, verses 17 through 30. It says, but even if I'm being poured out, Paul writes, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What, What Paul means by that is that in ancient Israel they would take this pitcher of wine and poured out on the altar in front of God as a drink offering, right? It was just a, it's a gift to show their honor and worship for God. They pour out the drink offering before God. And Paul says, if that's my life, if I'm being poured out, if my life is being poured out as a drink offering for you, for your service of faith, if I'm, if I'm giving my life so that you all can know and worship God, I'm going to rejoice in that. He, remember, he's on trial right now. He's facing possible execution. So he says, even if I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice, I'm good with that for you guys. right? That, that, that's his motivation, because I want you all to experience what I've experienced. He goes on to say, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So he's saying, I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice, not a, not a salvific sacrifice like Jesus, but as an offering to God on your behalf, I'm serving you, and I'm going to rejoice in that, and I need you to give yourselves to me. He's not asking them to pour out their lives for him, but to, to offer him themselves. We need each other is what he's saying. And then he goes on to say, But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interest, not the interest of Christ Jesus. But you know of His proven worth, that He served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also may be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed about "'Because you heard that he was sick, "'for indeed he was sick to the point of death, "'but God had mercy on him, "'and not on him only, but also on me, "'so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. "'Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, "'so that when you receive him again, "'you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. "'Receive him then, and the Lord with all joy holding men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of the gospel, risking his life to complete what is deficient in your service to me. That's a lot, right? That, that's, a, that's a lot. Well, What Paul is saying, yeah, I know you're thinking, why in the world did he read that enormous text? <laughs> My question to you is, why is that enormous text even in the Bible, right? It's it's all just like background information between Paul and this church. Paul says, I want to send Timothy to you. Timothy is the one who's the scribe who's writing the book. The book is from Paul and Timothy. Paul's writing it orally, and he's writing it down. Timothy's writing down. Paul said, I want to send Timothy to you because I know if Timothy comes to you, he will minister to you and care for you and serve you like nobody else. Paul says, there's nobody else like Timothy. There, there's nobody else out here who cares for you and for me and the work of the gospel like Timothy. He says, everybody else is just looking out at their own interests, but Timothy, he's different. But I can't send Timothy to you yet because I'm under house arrest. He's the one that's going into town and bringing food back for me. He's the one that's taking care of me. I'm under house arrest. I can't take care of myself. And so he's here ministering to me. So I can't let him go now but I want to, and as soon as I find out how the trial goes, if I get off, I'm sending Timothy to you. And then he says, I want to come later also. I'm going to come afterwards, but I'm going to send Timothy to you. But I can't send him yet. But, he says, I'm going to send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is this Christian who's from Macedonia, from Philippi, that the Philippians sent to Paul to check on Paul when he's under house arrest and to help take care of Paul. But he got terribly sick And they heard back in Philippi that he was close to death and they don't know if he did die. And so Paul says, I'm going to send this letter back to you, this scroll, through Epaphroditus. Because when you see him, you're going to be so encouraged to see him alive. And it's going to ease the burden that I feel that he got so sick. And it's going to encourage him. And then he says, Epaphroditus and people like him that offer themselves in this service of the gospel, you know, they should be highly respected and all of this, like I said when I, when, I, when I started the explanation, you read that and you think, really? Do we all need to know all that, you know? And I think the reason we all need to know all that, the reason it's printed in the Bible 2,000 years later that we're still reading it as an inspired text, is because, yes, we need to know this. We need to know that we can't work out this salvation on our own. Even as God's working within us, we can't work out our own salvation on our own. We need the church to work with us. Paul can't do this on his own. If it's not for Timothy, Paul can't do this. And so you see, everywhere that Paul goes, he's always going, right, with Silas or Barnabas or Mark or Timothy or Luke. He's always got a team of people with him. Because he can't do this on his own. And now he's in jail and they send Epaphroditus to him because they know that he needs encouragement. Now he sends Epaphroditus back because he knows that Epaphroditus himself needs encouragement. He's homesick. He needs to see his people again. He needs to be back in his church again. And what Paul's saying to us is that we need that. We can't work out our salvation on our own even as God works within us. We need to do that in the context of the church. If you're not in church, or if you're not in church where people know you, if you're not in a small group, if you're not in fellowship with people, if you're not praying where two or three gather together, you're missing out on the context, right, on the environment of how we live out this gospel life. You know, the word saint is never in the Bible. Saints is in the New Testament like 50 times, but the word saint is never in the Bible because we can't become holy people Individually, singularly, we always become holy as we do this together in faith. And so it's the church that's working in you. We're called to as we live out this gospel life, as we are confident that God's going to finish what He's starting us. The way God finishes what He's starting us is by us doing something, us working, working the means of grace. Not working like, on my own, I'm going to get righteous. On my own, I'm going to keep the law. No, working the means of grace, availing ourselves to God. As God works in us, we're working to connect with God. As God works in us to transform us from the inside out, and the context of that happening is the fellowship, the relationship, the support, the accountability, the encouragement that we experience in the church. Now, so many of us feel like We've got to carry the weight of the world all by ourselves. I know so many of us, we don't have anybody we can talk to. And our marriage is a weight on our shoulders and there's, it doesn't feel like there's anybody that we can talk to. Or, or our job is just, it feels like it's killing us and we feel like we have to bear under that all by ourselves. Or our, our financial hardship or, or the, the stress in our life, well, whatever it is in your life, so many of us feel like this is all on us. We carry all that anxiety, all that burden. We, we don't measure up to our own standards. We're afraid we don't measure up to our boss's standards, or our neighbor's standards, or our, our spouse's standards. And it's just, it's this burden. And Paul is saying, listen, as we live out this Christian life, we don't do it alone. There's something for us to do. We're not passive in this. There's something for us to do, and what that something is is to avail ourselves to God and the means of God. But God is the one that's ultimately doing it, but not God in isolation. Just me and God. I can figure this out. But God working in the context of the church. People like Paul Paul, pouring themselves out for us, pouring themselves out to us. People like Timothy, They don't make many like Timothy, Paul says. Everybody's looking out their own interests, but not Timothy. Timothy's looking out for us. He's looking out for you guys. People like Epaphroditus who take risks to offer themselves for the gospel. We need these people in our lives. And listen, brothers and sisters, we need to be those people in your lives, in each other's lives, and the people's lives, to your right and your left and in front and back of you and on the chat screen with you. We need to be those types of people because we can't. The way God completes us is this way. It's relationally. It's our relationship with God and our relationship with others. It's it's God completing us as we work out our salvation in the context of the church. And so let's pray that might be so in our lives. Lord God, thank you that you invite us to be new creatures. And by your grace, you come into our lives and you begin this new birth and you offer us a a completion of this new birth that you started in us, a perfecting of our faith, a maturing of our faith. And Lord, we desperately need that. We need to be different parents. We need to be different spouses. We need to be different workers or different bosses. We need you, Lord, to make us into different Christians. People that live out this gospel life because you're living in us and through us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us your grace to work out our own salvation. To daily be spending time with you and receiving your spirit and your word into our lives. We do pray that you would work out this salvation. In us, that you would finish what you started in us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bring those people into our lives. A small group, a church, a fellowship, brothers and sisters that can encourage us. People that don't just look out for their own interests. People that look out for the interests of others. People that give themselves and pour themselves out for folks like us. May this be a church and may this be a fellowship where we see that happening over and over in our lives that lives are being transformed in the context of relationship because you're in the midst working out this salvation in us as we work for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.